And now, ladies and gentlemen, man, it is my privilege to introduce to you one of the most fabulous speakers on the planet Earth about Emily Swan. I was like, oh man, I don't know if the sermon will live up to that. We'll see here. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, we have been in the middle of a sermon series that we're calling Understanding Our Limits. Humility is the path to love. And we talked a couple of weeks ago when I opened this sermon series about how sometimes the, the word humility is misunderstood. And it's really not meant to make us feel like we need to be less than or lower than other people. But the humility means that we value ourselves as equal with others, right? That we don't consider ourselves too highly and we don't consider ourselves too lowly, but it's this like empowering acceptance of the self in spite of all of our human limitations and our weaknesses, that no matter what, we all have equal worth. And some people need to see that they're not more valuable than others in the world, while others need to see that they are just as worthy of life and love as anyone. So then last week, Ken talked about how humility means that we don't see ourselves as heroes, right? That we remember that we all come from dust and the dust that we will return to, and that doing these big dramatic things in life isn't what allows us to love others best, but rather it's the faithfulness in the small things that we do every day for the people that we love, and that we do those small things as unto God, as a sign of our humility and our willingness to do the work of loving others. And so today we're going to dig in a little bit further, and we're going to talk about how humility manifests using the story of Moses. And I'm going to sit in several of the stories of Moses this morning for quite a bit of the sermon. But first I thought I would tell another story. I can kind of wrap myself out here. So about 20 years ago, I was in college, I was about 20, and well, I was 20, and I was backpacking Europe with one of my longtime friends. So we had gone after a summer, it's actually the very first summer I came up to Ann Arbor and I interned at a company up here and I stashed away all of my money because I was living somewhere for free. And I thought, okay, we'll go and we'll go to Europe on the cheap. And so my friend Diana, who I've known since fifth grade, she and I, we traipsed around using one of those Eurorail passes. You know, it's like one of those passes where you pay a, a set amount of money and then for a set number of like days or weeks, you can just kind of hop onto any train that comes through. And so we'd been at it maybe three weeks. We'd been hopping from town to town, and we decided to head up to Norway. And those train passes that you get, they really are meant for students like we were, right? So you don't have to actually purchase a ticket for every single train ride. You can just get on. But the downside to that is, is that you don't have an assigned seat. So if the train is filled, that means you're standing or sitting, right? So we had stood and sat on several different trains as we went through. And we were on this long train ride across Norway to Bergen. And we were like, man, this is gonna be so long. I wonder if we could sit like in the luggage compartment. You know, so it's like one of those, you know, like there's a couple of racks and you've got the, the woven fabric, you know, and there's like one here and one here. And at that point I was tiny and Diana was tiny. And so we squeezed into like that middle one and did like this for hours. And we had like almost no food with us because of course we hadn't thought of that. And I remember what we ate because it was so awful and we were so hungry. So I don't know if you guys have ever had like those British tea biscuits, you know, like those round ones that are a little like a graham cracker. We had a few of those and we had a can of tuna in oil. Yeah, and we had my Swiss army knife, which we like had to, you know. 
But we were like, put it on there, and it still kind of makes me sick to think about it. So I say all of this just to say that we arrive on the west coast of Norway, and we get out in Bergen, and I mean, we're hungry, and we're thirsty, and we're cranky, and we're tired. And on top of that, the backpacks that we carried were probably 60 or 70 pounds. I mean, like, mine towered above me. It was, like, filled to the brink because both Diana and I were going to study abroad after we backpacked. So she went to Hungary and I went on to Ireland. So we've got like a whole semester's worth of clothes and shoes and knowing me, probably books. So we're a mess. And so we got off the train. Yeah, Ken and Rachel laughed, they know. Rachel's seen our living room. We got off the train and we decided to head to the center of town because we're trying to find a tourist office so we can find a hostel. Because if you guys know me, I was like, well, let's not plan the trip, let's like just go be free, we'll figure out where we're going when we get there, which, you know, is sometimes a good idea and sometimes not. So we get off this train and we walk about 45 minutes one way before we realize that we're going the wrong way. And I mean, like those backpacks, I just, they probably messed me up forever. So we backtrack and we get to the train station and we start going the other way. And a few minutes along, I, I will never forget this, Diana turned and she pointed to a sign and she said, oh, I think it's that way. That looks like one of the tourist signs. And me, I was like, no, that's, that's not where it is. I'm pretty sure, I looked at the map, it's way up there. You know, in my head, I'm like, no, dude, I'm really good with directions, I got this. Yeah, which, I'm not really good with directions. This was a learning, this was a learning experience. So I won and we kept walking and so we walked the other way for about 40 minutes. And I'll never forget how furious Diana got. I remember at one point she just turned to look at me and she threw off her backpack and pulled it out and was like, no, we were supposed to have turned back there. And by that point I was like, oh God, I know she's right. (laughs) So we turned around and lo and behold, the office was like a couple of blocks from that sign. And I was furious at myself. I was mad because I was wrong and because of how obnoxious. I had been because, I mean, we walked almost three hours that city with those backpacks, mainly because of my pride. And when I was thinking back through my life of one of those times, I was like, what's a time where I was definitely wrong when I really thought I was right? That one stands out to me. And I still feel a little bit ashamed of it because I was just insistent that I knew what I was doing when I didn't. And I didn't want to ask for directions because I knew where I was going. And I certainly wasn't going to listen to my friend's input. So that brings me to today's sermon topic. (laughs) We can't know everything. Humility recognizes that we can't possibly know everything. Humility asks for help. Humility takes advice. And humility delegates power to those who might know better. So I'm starting with Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3. It says that Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Which it just strikes me that tradition has it that Moses wrote that. (laughs) I don't think he actually did, but (laughs) I thought, well, let's just take a few minutes here, and I'm actually just going to share some of the stories of Moses, and just tell them and highlight some of these areas about why maybe Moses perhaps recorded himself as being the most humble man that ever walked the earth. So Moses grew up in Egypt, but Moses was not an Egyptian. Moses was a Hebrew, and Moses' parents were Hebrews. And the Hebrew people, they had been enslaved to the Egyptians. And so when Moses was a baby, the Egyptian pharaoh, he decided to kill all of the Hebrew baby boys. And so Moses' mom and his sister Miriam, they took the baby Moses and they put him into a little basket 
and they sent him down into the Nile River, hoping that he would be found by maybe a more well-to-do Egyptian family and be raised as an Egyptian. And so Moses' sister, she went down and she released this basket into the water and we're told that she hid among the reeds and she was watching. And as she watched, one of Pharaoh's daughters came down to bathe and Pharaoh's daughter had several handmaids with her. And that Egyptian princess, the Pharaoh's daughter, saw the basket that had Moses in it. And so she went out and she found the baby and she took the child in to be raised in the royal palaces in Cairo. And so as Moses grew, he became aware that his people, the Hebrew people, had been mistreated and had been enslaved by the Egyptians. And so one day he was out and he was walking among the people as they were doing all of this hard labor. And he watched an Egyptian man beating and abusing one of the Hebrew slaves. And so he saw that happen and he went over and when he thought no one was looking, he murdered that Egyptian man who was abusing one of the slaves and he was enraged and then he put him into the ground and covered his body with sand. And then the next day we're told that Moses went back out in among his people again and he was watching them do the hard labor. Only this time, as he was walking among them, he saw two of the Hebrew slaves quarreling with each other. And he turned to them and he said, will you please stop quarreling amongst yourselves? And then one of them turned around to him and was like, who are you? Who are you to judge us and to tell us what to do? Are you thinking about killing us the way you killed that Egyptian guy yesterday? And that's when Moses realized that his secret was out, that someone had seen him and that word was already making arounds among the Hebrew slaves that he had killed one of the Egyptian men. And so Moses was scared and we're told that he fled. He fled far away from Egypt. He went to a place called Midian, which today we locate just in the western part of Saudi Arabia over the Red Sea. And Moses didn't know what to do when he got there and he came across a man who was a shepherd and we're told was also a priest of Midian. And he asked if he could work for him. And so he went to work for this shepherd priest and this shepherd priest had seven daughters and one of them became Moses' wife. And so Moses, who is one of the chief prophets in our tradition, came to be in an intercultural, interfaith marriage with a woman named Zipporah. And he says to himself, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. And so one day Moses, he's watching after the flock of this shepherd priest father-in-law of his. And it says that he was coming across the bush and the bush was on fire, only the bush wasn't actually being consumed. And he's like, well, that's odd. So he stops by and he hears a voice and the voice says, Moses, Moses. So Moses says, here I am. And God says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And I've seen the misery of the Hebrew people and I've heard their cries and I'm concerned about their suffering. Right? He said, I've seen them, I've heard them, and I'm concerned about them. And I wanna rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and I wanna bring them out of that land into a place that is good and spacious and safe, a place that's flowing with milk and honey. So go, I'm gonna send you to the Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And so Moses, he says to God, he says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring these Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, I'll be with you. And then God says a bunch more stuff. And then Moses says, 
But what if they don't believe me? And what if they don't listen to me? And they say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And so God says, well, I'll give you two signs that you can show to them to prove that I didn't appear to you. And so then Moses says, well, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, either in the past or even since you've been speaking to me right now. I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. And the Lord says to him, I will help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. And then Moses says, oh, come on, pardon your servant, Lord. Just please send somebody else. And that's when it says the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And the Lord says to him, he says, well, what about your brother Aaron? Look, he can speak well and he's already on his way here and he'll be happy to see you. So why don't you just speak and then he can tell the people for you what you're trying to say and I'll teach you both what to speak and I'll teach you what to do. Right, so at this point, Moses, he's got this whole, like, don't think of yourself as a hero part down. Right, he's actually erring on the other way. He's thinking too lowly of himself. I mean, he's got all of these excuses. Like, Lord, don't ask me to do this. I'm a murderer. Don't send me. Who's going to believe that God would send me to do something like this? Don't send me. I'm not physically capable. And then just like, oh, dear Lord, just please don't send me. And all of those disclaimers that he was making, they didn't cause God to look at him and go, oh, that's just like so humble of you, Moses. You're such a sweetie. <laughs> no, man, God was frustrated with him. God's like, look, I made you. I know what you're capable of. I'm asking you to do this. So you've got to trust me that I'm going to give you the tools to do it. I want you to rely on me. Right, so Moses, he begins this journey that he does eventually step into him into not fully aware of who he is or what he's capable of. He doesn't really accept himself where he's at, but he's growing. And he's about to take this spiritual journey that helps him develop a little bit further as a leader. So Moses steps into this trusting God more. He begins to start to reimagine a different future for himself and for his people. And we won't go through that story if you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt. It's a great animated story that talks about how Moses brings the people out of Egypt and after he brings them out, they start to wander the deserts of the Near East for about 40 years. And they did that before they came into the land where they eventually settled. So Moses, through all of this, is maturing as a leader. And he almost starts to swing in the opposite direction. You know, he was thinking too lowly of himself. And then he kind of starts to border up here. And I don't know that I want to say that like his pride was out of hand. But he came to a point where he started to see himself as the solution to all of the people's problems. And it became out of balance. So in Exodus 18, there's another story about Moses and his father-in-law. So Moses and the people are out wandering the deserts. And I'm, I'm guessing then that they're out in the deserts near Midian, out in Saudi Arabia. And so they're close to where his father-in-law was. And his father-in-law, that shepherd priest of Midian, whose name is Jethro, I kid you not, reminds me of like the Beverly Hillbillies. Right. You know, like, so Jethro comes out. And he goes out to Moses to greet him. And Moses invites him in and they have a meal together, a large, lavish meal with all of the elders of Israel. And they eat and they drink and they're exchanging pleasantries. But then the next day, Moses has to work. We all know how that feels. Tomorrow's Monday. And his daily work consisted of being available for hours on end to serve as a judge for his people. As you have to understand, there were hundreds of thousands of people. Some people would say millions. I've heard numbers up to two million. And so when you've got people, you have conflict. And so people started to bring their disputes to Moses for him to settle. And so seeing how busy he was, Jethro 
comes over to Moses and he says, look, what you're doing isn't good. You and these people who come to you, you're just gonna wear yourselves out. This work is way too heavy for you. You can't handle this alone. So listen to me and I'll give you some advice and may God be with you in this. Look, you should be the people's representative before God and you should teach them all of the decrees that he has given to you. In other words, teach them the law. Teach people what is right and what is wrong and then show them the way to live. But then select capable men, unfortunately just men, from among the people in this story. And the ones that you can tell are really good at understanding the law. And I want you to appoint them as officials over thousands and then hundreds and then fifties and then tens. And then you can have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But then if there's like a really difficult case, you can have them bring that to you and the simple ones they can decide for themselves. And that's gonna make your load lighter because they'll share it with you. And if you do this as God commands, you'll be able to relieve yourself of some of that strain that's been on you and the people will go home satisfied. And it says that Moses listened to his father-in-law and he did all that he asked. And so he appointed men who could then be in charge of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Because essentially at this point, what we're seeing is that Moses had become a workaholic, hadn't he? Which is a form of seeing ourselves as a hero. And it really took his father-in-law to come into his life and say, look, this is way too much. This isn't good for you. This isn't good for the people. You've got to be able to delegate to lead well. And so here I think is when we start to really see Moses and why he's remembered as being a humble man, right? So instead of like digging in his heels and getting super defensive, refusing to trust people or feeling threatened by these capable men who are being asked to lead thousands of others, he accepts the wisdom and he starts to apply it. You know, like some of us have had this experience, I suspect, where you've had somebody who's maybe just wiser than you come into your life and just kind of drop a nugget of wisdom and something that sticks with you. Um, I've got a story about my mother-in-law, but actually I was just looking at Martha Balmer there and I thought, she probably doesn't know this, but she said something to me once that is just like resonated in my spirit. She said, I wonder what it'd be like to like um, be like a spiritual director for an entire city. And that's something that like comes to me sometimes when I'm thinking about different letters that I'm writing publicly or things like that. So anyway, sometimes people just drop a nugget. I remember like when we bought our house, our first house here, it was two and a half years ago. One of the reasons that I love our house is because it's got this giant backyard. I know we threw a party like that first year, so some of you guys have seen it. It's, it's a nice sized backyard with a big privacy fence right in the middle of Ypsilanti. And it's kind of wild around the edges. You know, some people might say over landscaped and others might just say overgrown. <laughs> but I think it's beautiful and for me I probably had a little bit of an idealistic picture without really understanding what it might take to take care of it and so we just bought the house and I was walking outside with my mother-in-law Gretchen and she just looked around and she was just like you know Em I just you should just not feel pressure to like you know make this tame within the first couple of years here like you guys have a long time don't put you know any stress on yourselves you can sort of incrementally work on it at the time, I was just like, eh, you know, it's not really a problem. It's not going to take that much to keep up. <sighs> Three summers later, I have a little bit better understanding of what Gretchen meant. And it's actually been really helpful for me as I'm out there. Like, I, I dug up a really big section of weeds and trees and all sorts of things this year. And it was just really freeing. Like, that's right. I feel a little overwhelmed by this, but I don't have to do it all right now. 
and that just comes back to me. And I think advice can be like that. It's like we're ready to hear it when we're ready to hear it. And a posture of humility is able to take other people's feedback into account and accept their wisdom. And that doesn't mean that people's advice is always good. It's just like that an openness to be able to hear it signals like a confidence in ourselves that really finds its genesis in humility. Something I'm still learning. There's also a chapter in the book of Numbers, it's chapter 27, and it's got two other little short stories of Moses' humility. And in the first one, because I just thought, well, if we can point out three different stories that are showing us three different things here. And so in the second story, a man named Zelophehad died. And Zelophehad, he had five daughters. And none of them were married and none of them could inherit their father's property. And so these five daughters, they were like early feminists and they knew what was what and they decided they were gonna fight that injustice. So they went over to Moses and they were like, dude, we know we don't have a brother, but we think that we deserve to inherit our dad's inheritance as much as any man does. And so it says that Moses felt in his heart that they were right, right? He knew the inheritance rules, but his heart was leaning toward the women and toward the injustice that was being done to them. So Roberta Bondi, whose, whose book, To Love as God Loves, that we're loosely basing this sermon series on, she says this, this is, I thought, a really interesting quote that we'll unpack. She says, if the fulfillment of the moral law for its own sake is seen to be the point of the Jewish law, the temptation in cases of doubt is to err on the side of caution. If the point of the law is love, then the Christian must be prepared to take real risks for the sake of other people. Right, so in other words, if the point of the rules is to follow the rules, then Moses should enact the rules with these five women. But if the point of the rules is to help us love better, then Moses should pay attention to his heart and should inquire of God how to best proceed. Right? And that's what he does. He says to God, you know what Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You gotta give them some properties and inheritance among their father's relatives and you should give their father's inheritance to them. And then we're told that Moses, that God does what Moses requests. And then they change the law to make space for women to inherit property. And so one of the points that Bondi makes that's based on the teachings of the early monastic desert mothers and fathers is that sometimes she says, we humans, we can become so consumed with examining our own motives for doing what seems to us to be good. You know, it's like, she, we don't see Moses questioning whether or not he's right to challenge God or to challenge the standing law. He like just does it in the name of love. And I can't help but think of how changes tend to be made in the broader church. You know, that often challenges to tradition or to different teachings are brought in the name of love. When the traditions and rules say one thing, but our hearts are telling us that the rules aren't loving and they're not just toward a group of people, if the point of the rules is to love, then we should err on the risk, um, err on risking embrace and breaking the rules or else expanding the rules to be more inclusive and just. And Bondi says that following the rules just for the sake of following the rules is actually prideful, that we need to be open and responsive to the needs of others around us for the sake of the ultimate goal, which is love. And she says, you know, if Moses had sat around just contemplating the purity of his motives, like, am I doing this for the right reason? Am I bending to culture? Am I, you know, blah, 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 in advocating for single women, oh my, then he could become kind of paralyzed and end up just maintaining the status quo. And Bondi says 
that we can examine our own motives for doing what we believe is right all the live long day, but in the end, she's like, you can just become sort of self-absorbed with doing it. She's like, if there's a need, meet it. If there's an injustice, fix it. And the idea that our intentions have to be absolutely pure or current rules followed to the T to accomplish anything of merit, she says that actually falls short of humility and it borders more on sloth because it, it paralyzes us from actually helping those in need. So Moses saw the need and he met it and he leaned into love. And what we see is that God met him in that space. He went to God and he said, this isn't right. I agree with the girls. They need to inherit, they are women. They should inherit their father's property. And then that story is immediately followed by Moses having another conversation with God about who's gonna lead the people when he's gone. And Moses, he knew that his time was nearing, and so instead of relying solely on his own judgment, he asked for God and help with choosing a successor. And I think so often we humans, we look at other humans and we think we know what good leaders look like. And they look different depending on the culture that you're in. Each culture values different um, characteristics in their leaders. Our particular American culture tends to favor brash extroverts. And sometimes they can lead well. But what God looks for is he's looking for people who handle power well and those who can place their trust in a God who is love. And so God highlights Joshua for Moses. And so Moses brings up Joshua and he calls together all of the people and he gives him public affirmation. He places his hands on him, he bestows his power and he starts to train him and he starts to share the power with him. And I know for me, like that's a sign that I'm usually looking for people in for people who want to lead is I'm usually looking at how do they use power? Are they attracted to power for power's sake? Because to me, that, that's the mark of humility, how somebody is going to be able to handle power. And none of us is perfect at how we handle it, but people can at least be teachable. They can learn, like Moses was learning. Do you use power to favor yourself? And I'd say if you're a manager of any sort, that, that tends to me to be an important characteristic to look for in people who are potential hires. I mean, we can see this throughout our culture and the conversation happening now with you know, all these different people in Hollywood and uh, various places being accused of abusing their power. Who handles power well? So I think for all that Moses went through, and he went through some traumatic things, for me, he is really an impressive character. And he's one that goes, undergoes like a really significant change as he starts to mature, as somebody who thinks too little of himself to someone who really starts to carry a quiet confidence in his own gifts, right? He knows that he's as prone to sin as much as anybody else. He asks God for help. He asks for advice. He's willing to challenge unfavorable rules, but he does it not by being like self-righteous and demanding, but he does it because he advocates for the powerless. And that's where authority and influence can be very good things. They can be used well, and they can be used righteously by people who are carrying power well by the humble of heart. So with that, we're going to have a little bit of a meditation here. We often close our services with a two or three minutes of silence, sometimes a little guided meditation. And I think today we're going to take more silence than guided meditation. And I thought what I would do is just pray that the Holy Spirit um, would just speak to us in this space. And I would invite you that if you have some place where you're needing wisdom, you're like, I don't know what to do in this, and you can just confess what that is and we'll make space for God to talk to us in whatever way maybe we are able and open to hear that. Sometimes it's in pictures or in words or in songs. 
And you might also be here just needing comfort this morning. And I thought it might be a space where if you're like, I don't need wisdom, I just need to feel God loves me and I need to feel God's with me. And we'll just sit here in the silence of the holy. So Holy Spirit, we know that you're here. And Jesus, we believe that you speak to us today. And we ask that your presence and spirit of wisdom and of comfort would be with us in this space. People and baby make noises. Doesn't have to be completely silent, but Lord, we offer our silence and our quiet hearts to you in this time. Jesus, we thank you that your wisdom is available to us. Lord, I ask that you would send different people into our lives in this coming week who can offer us nuggets of wisdom. We thank you that we can talk to you about even the smallest things or things that don't seem that important in the larger scheme, but that you care, things that are going on in our families and in our jobs. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to be a guide and an advocate for us. I ask, Lord, that you would fill and refill us with that spirit, that you would surround us and give us wisdom and comfort, and that you would be near to us, Lord, as we enter into the holiday times, that you would bring comfort and grace and peace. In the name of Jesus, amen.